Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Aria Lightstone. He served as advisor to the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, and he has written a story of Middle East peace efforts in a new book entitled Let My People Know, The Incredible Story of Middle East Peace and What Lies Ahead. This is our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Lightstone. Thank you so much for having me today. All right. This is, this is an account, a direct account of recent history uh, written by someone who was at the center of things. And the first thing, uh, let me ask, is what was your background and how did you end up on the team in Israel? You, you, you described this in the, in the beginning of the book, so, but let me, let me have you do that again. Th- thank you kindly. Uh, my background, according to most, would probably be unqualified, uh, but perhaps that's what made us the most qualified. It was an unusual group of characters at a truly unusual time. Uh, and if one thinks of the Middle East in general, it, it certainly was a place where I think hopes and dreams went to die, and oftentimes worse and and and, and less good things than that. Uh, my background was I uh, grew up in Denver, Colorado, uh, have a real estate background, and then became a rabbi. Uh, certainly an unlikely course of events, uh, and practiced uh, with uh, sort of youth ministry uh, for about ten years, trying to understand that kids are going to be better off connected to their roots and to their traditions, uh, and they'll be better for the future because of that. And I spent 10 years doing that, and it was through that ministry uh, that I met David Friedman. And uh, it was through that ministry that I met other people who engaged me in what became a tremendous passion, which was was trying to work with the American people on fighting against the Iran deal, uh, which struck me as perhaps the greatest capitulation of a superpower to a non-power uh, certainly in, in my living memory, and was engaged with that. And in the process of that, once you sort of fall into the vortex of politics, you're into the vortex of politics. And uh, while I support Marco Rubio in the primaries, um, I'm fairly positive all of your listeners know, uh, he was not the Republican nominee. And uh, and when Donald Trump became the nominee for president, I texted my friend and mentor, David Friedman, and said, you know, fantastic and good luck. You're going to be a great ambassador. And he said, uh, not so fast. You have to be confirmed first. And uh, would you join me on the confirmation process? And and I don't know what compelled me to call him or text him that first morning. And I'm not positive at all what compelled him to respond to me amongst the thousands of other texts or WhatsApps that he had. But uh, God smiled upon me and my family. And, and we eventually were invited along on this incredible journey. Very good. Very good. Uh, there was some unusual things about the appointments not just of you, but of David Friedman. How was he picked out for this very important and tricky job? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And and the shame of it is is it became hyper-partisan from the split second that his name was announced, as though Donald Trump should have been elected in order to nominate somebody who had done this uh, for decades in the past. That was sort of the, the, the general feeling is, if you're not a Middle East expert, please don't touch it. You're just going to make it worse. And well, Donald and, and, and Arya, yeah. this, is, this is, of course, totally valid because the re- we'll get into this, but the record of the experts in the Middle East for the four, last 40 years has been stellar. <laughs> exactly correct. Uh, certainly a place where, where all uh, policies have worked out exactly how they were originally crafted. And, and actually, as I look out my window here in Israel, it's only rainbows and unicorns. And, uh, and that's worked out really, really well. Um, and so, so, you know, Donald Trump, and I, I don't know the president particularly well. I've had the privilege of being in his, you know, circle several different times and watched him act up close. But my connection was originally through David Friedman and then expanded through, you know, everywhere from the vice president to the secretary of state and ambassador Haley and, and to me, most prominently Jared Kushner, uh, at the end, he and Avi Berkowitz and getting to be on their Abraham Accord team. But, but the president, I think, walking into Washington, D.C., wanted people that he could trust and people that he respected. And I think he knew walking into Washington, D.C., that both of those values and virtues were in very short supply. And so we brought people with. And David Friedman, I believe, knew the president for longer than anybody else in the administration. And because of that, they had mm. a very intense connectivity and bond that enabled David to be David. And, and Ambassador Friedman, without a doubt, was the most consequential U.S. ambassador to Israel ever. And what made it so remarkable and interesting is that he was nominated before the president and nominated all of his cabinet, which is completely and totally unheard of. Hmm. What had happened to U.S.-Israel relations in the preceding eight years under Obama? Yeah, so Israel was shaped with what they like to describe as a unheard of proposition, which is not true. If you look back, it actually resembled the late 1970s under President Carter. And there was this feeling of, of both distance and um, non-cohesion. Let me say that more simply. Uh, the Obama administration had a very distinct foreign policy, which was different than any U.S. administration had had really prior to that. It wanted to elevate the Iranians. It wanted to allow the Arab Spring and the success of the Muslim Brotherhood through, quote, duly elected processes to happen and declared to the Muslim world that uh, that the United States does not stand uh, inextricably, inextricably linked with Israel, and therefore there is daylight there. And, and the reason why that is devastating is not because Israel has ever asked for a single U.S. troop to protect Israel's border, and it's not because Israel has ever asked for U.S. Uh, forces to protect its sovereign rights. It's actually the exact opposite, and that way different than most of our American allies. Uh, but what Israel has asked for is that for the United States to back it up, uh, in the international world and to do so via diplomacy. And there are sort of two competing superpowers. And, and I'll sort of explain it like this. The prevailing thought doubled down on by Obama, but existed all the way from, from 1948, the creation of the state of Israel, is that if you could just solve the Palestinian-Israel issue, the rest of the Middle East will fall into place like dominoes. Uh, I don't know why people thought that was true, but that became the prevailing wisdom in every decision and every investment and every push 
sort of got made in, in that specific direction. And what Obama and his administration decided they were going to do was to put all of their efforts into this opportunity. And the way they were going to do it was to elevate Iran and to denigrate Israel. And in so it would create space for the Palestinians to go ahead and to rise to their destiny to be a co-equal state in this very slim piece of land. And that was what the Obama foreign policy was was pushing towards. But even worse than that, if, if I can just point sure. this out, as Secretary Kerry, the current climate czar, but then the Secretary of State, he himself would get involved in negotiations of where stop signs and traffic lights would go in the West Bank, where you have this shared and complicated area. And, and while that showed tremendous commitment and enjoyment, but the United States of America's Secretary of State was getting involved with where a traffic light or an intersection should go, completely and totally pivoted the leverage that the Palestinians had on anything that they had to do, because they had the attention of the single most important country of the world and the most important foreign policy person of that, at, down to where their light, light poles went. And that's, that's an insane amount of focus on a non-country. And, uh, and that was sort of the legacy of the Obama administration. You came in and what you really saw, I mean, you, you used the term nonsense thinking, but, and that, that's really a term for just a set of dogmas that had become yeah. frozen in a way, like, like the one you just mentioned, that it almost became a test of expertise. If you accept this dogma, then, then you're an expert. Right. That's and exactly if you, right. If you bring some critical thinking to a lot of these dogmas, you're, you're automatically suspect. Did you feel when you came in to the so-called peace process, uh, did you get this instant, maybe if not open hostility, but open skepticism of who are you? What do you know? Yes. So, so. Throughout the U.S. embassy in Tel Aviv and then later on in Jerusalem, um, I will tell you 98% of my colleagues uh, treated me incredibly civilly and politely. And it was, it was, I don't mean this in a negative way. Today, you have to be so careful in terms of what you say. A little bit like a zoo animal, like, oh, my goodness, what is this guy doing here? Uh, or how we would treat summer interns. That's probably a nicer way to put it. Uh, but as we got to know each other and we saw that, oh, my God, you know, Lightstone doesn't want to go ahead and put all the Palestinians on a train and move them somewhere else. And Lightstone doesn't believe in X or Y or whatever else RX or the New York Times had, had reported on that. And really, I was a vehicle to communicate on behalf of Ambassador Friedman to the general embassy, which has a thousand plus employees, how we could all move forward to strengthen the U.S.-Israel relationship. That was fascinating. I think a lot of people thought that Ambassador Friedman was going to land and and be advocating for Israel, uh, mostly because our embassies had been so used to advocating for, for the state of Palestine, as I use air quotes. Um, we came to advocate for the United States of America. And that was, I think, refreshing. Once people heard sort of the benefits of the U.S.-Israel relationship, and I put U.S. first in that statement, because that's who we represent, that was, that was fascinating. So from the embassy people, I'll give them enormous credit they want to support the U.S. interests, and they were able to come along and, if not excitingly, certainly willingly, supported all the policies that the ambassador dictated and I tried to execute with the team there. But then you have the peace processors, and these are the professional NGOs 
and the rest of these groups out there that that are baked into this dogma that you so correctly stated they did not you refer class. you referred to the quote ngo echo chamber right exactly right exactly right and the way it would work and this was facilitated by the united states of america the ngos would publish reports and we the united states of america would publish their findings in our reports as though they were facts and gospel and when an embassy publishes a report in the case of the u.s embassy in jerusalem or tel aviv it's the human rights report it's international freedom uh, report, they would go back to Main State. They'd get distilled and go to our intelligence agencies and to our commerce agencies and to our State Department agencies. They would then be cited in academic papers. And then what would wind up happening was the NGOs would go out the following year and now cite our academic papers, which <laughs> cited them. And and, it just, and they would go back, they'd go back to their fundraisers and say, look, I was cited by the Kennedy School. And I'm like, how do people not realize that we've created a bubble? It's a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you do say that you you hit up this kind of this kind of echo chamber, but also a, a certain uh, lassitude, or I'm not I'm not quite sure how to put it, but this happened when you went to the commercial team in Israel. This was this was a group. Well, why, why don't you describe? Uh, what what the commercial so, team in Israel was? What were they supposed to do? Who were they? How and how were they doing? Yeah. So look, when when you look at the commercial team traditionally for the United States of America, there are probably a lot of countries where our teams can win. I mean, our teams, U.S. companies, can win a lot of contracts. Uh, Israel is a small country. It in and of itself doesn't divvy out that many contracts, and the Chinese had taken a hold on numerous different, whether it's a uh, light rail or underground or desal plants or whatever else it would be. And, and it was mind boggling because if there's a country in the world that we should have the greatest amount of influence, it should certainly be Israel. Israel relies on the United States of America in so many ways. We have a reciprocal relationship in so many meaningful ways. And I'm sitting here and I'm, my, yeah. our U.S. companies are not winning every single deal that comes out of here. How is that possible? And I turned to the team there and they said, well, they don't want to compete. I said, they don't want to compete because you haven't told them that they'll win, or they don't want to compete because they know that they're going to lose. And when they realize that, that we haven't used the full force of the United States of America to support our companies, believe me, the Chinese do this. Believe me, so many other countries do that. And, and we, we weren't doing that, and we just left our leverage on the table. They uh, turned around a bit. Under your pressure, did they they respond? Yes, I'd like to say that the lack of predictability of the previous president of President Trump and his best friend in the administration, David Friedman, did wonders for uh, inspiring people to do make uh, quick one eighties where possible. And we had, you know, as as the as the um, in in Hebrew, it's called Mishle. Uh, the the proverbs, pardon me, the proverbs describes that sur ra the asetov. That first you have to stop doing bad things, and then you can have space to do good things. So the first thing was the Chinese Belt and Road Project is not a good thing. Let's look very carefully at how that looks, and let's just put the brakes on that figuratively and literally there. And now let's come up with the places where U.S. companies can succeed. And then we got pushback from the U.S. companies who said, look. I've been told if I do a deal in Israel, I'm not going to get to do a deal in Saudi. 
if I do a deal in Israel, I'm not going to get to do a deal in the UAE. And we said, I don't think that's true. That might have been true under Jimmy Carter. That could have been true under Bill Clinton, maybe under Bush. But that sure as heck isn't true under President Trump. There is no way that those countries are going to pull away from a U.S. company uh, because you're doing business in Israel. And they sort of called but, us but on that. And, and yeah. Is, is this what was really going on there, Aria? That it, okay. It'll be difficult. It, it might make things a little harder for us if we push the the Israeli controversy. It may be maybe harder for us to to go to Saudi Arabia. Doesn't that just mean? Well, you're just going to have to do a little more work, guys. Correct. Come on. Yeah. Is, isn't that what it was? Was that was really about? It wasn't political in, in any way. It was just ah. Uh... It it was perceived politics because the expert class told them that you cannot do this. And that theory was never tested. And this was, again, another example of the United States not acting like the superpower. And our companies, our American companies, sat on the sidelines because the expert class told them to sit on the sidelines. And, and the, 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 the bubble was burst when Jared uh, hosted this uh, Peace to Prosperity conference in Bahrain, in the Kingdom of Bahrain, in June of 2019 where he brought every major investor in the world and every major corporation in the world to show up in Bahrain to say, we're ready to invest for Palestinians with Israelis, but we're not going to stop this, this myth of what's going on over here. And once that happened, there was not a single time that a company or an embassy told me that it's not possible because Jared proved that which perceived to be impossible was indeed possible. Hmm. What was the Jerusalem Embassy Act? So the Jerusalem Embassy Act was a broad bipartisan uh, act passed in 1995, which had three requirements. One is that the United States recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Number two is that we, the United States, move our embassy to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And three, we put our ambassador's home, which is an official home. We put that in the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. And that was important because from 1948, when Harry Truman recognized the state of Israel on behalf of the United States of America, the United States did not allow Israel or did not recognize Israel's sovereign right to choose its own capital, which we do for every other country in the world. And because we didn't allow that, that was sort of this uh, daylight in between us and Israel, as though, as though, if you will, that Jerusalem is a temporary blip as Israel's capital and not its permanent capital. And this was not, we weren't telling Israel to make Jerusalem your capital. Israel decided that. One of my favorite lines was when Menachem Begin, sort of the first conservative prime minister of Israel, went to go meet with Margaret Thatcher in the early 80s. I and mean, that would have been a time to be alive, to, to see Thatcher and Begin and Reagan. That would have been fantastic. Um, but Begin was asked, are you going to ask Margaret Thatcher to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? And Begin turns to the press and he says, I suppose I will if she asks me to recognize London as the capital of the United Kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, whether anybody else recognizes it or not. And that, that's a fundamentally true thing. America did not make Jerusalem the capital of Israel. But what America did by not recognizing that is we defaulted and allowed somebody else to define our relationship with our ally. And on December 6th, 2017, when President Trump recognized Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. From 1995 to 2017, not every president waved. They, they forgave. They, they 
did not commit to follow the law of the United States of America. And, and President Trump took enormous courage and enormous vision, enormous guts. And if you read about it in David Friedman's book, you'll hear about that. But the Trump made the decision and that changed the world. That was a message not to Israel. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Why, why was he so firm on that issue? Any, any speculation about, about his motives? Yeah, he wanted, a, this is America's first policy. It's the law of the United States of America. And who did not want us to follow that law? A bunch of other countries. And yeah. it, it, when, when he did the calculation and said, wait, those countries don't want us to follow the law, but it's the law of the United States of America passed by like 85 or 90 percent margins, extremely popular in the United States, even today, extremely popular in the United States. Um, he wanted to follow the law. And I think the president, it appealed to him greatly to follow through on his campaign promise. Now, just remember, every single candidate for president had made the promise that they would be the ones to move the embassy to Jerusalem. And every single one of them who was elected failed to do so. But Republicans if, but if, and Democrats. But if we do take that step, massive war is going to break out in the Middle East. There, there, there are, there are yeah. going to be hundreds of thousands of casualties, which is what happened after we made the move to Jerusalem, correct? That's what the experts say. And <laughs> frankly, that's what the experts were rooting for. And that part is what I like to call the, it's not my saying, but the bigotry of low expectations. It's if the Palestinians don't get their way, they have no alternative but to kill Jews. It's not at all possible that we would expect that of any other people and any other aspiring group who wants to be a nation, that the lowest common denominator that they are able to blackmail the United States or Israel at every turn to say, if we don't get our way, okay, terrorism. That's, yeah. that's insane. You know, you, you note in the book that all the veterans in the State Department told Trump, do not do this. It will produce chaos and terror. How could these professionals get things so wrong? Because those professionals read the reports that were funded by the NGOs that were cited in academic papers that were then funded by the NGOs that were then fed up to the to the top. And, and if you if you see the the classic diplomats, who do the classic diplomats spend most of their time with? Other diplomats. So this became just a self-fulfilling prophecy. The French ambassador to uh, Czech sat there with the U.S. ambassador to Czech, and they were talking about the Middle East, because that's what everybody talks about. And they both can agree on everything, but they agree on the fact that if the United States were to move their embassy to Jerusalem, then this would cause war. The Pope called the president. Why in the world does the Pope call the president about where the United States of America places our embassy, right? So it, it matters because this is the self-fulfilling prophecy. This is the echo chamber. And this is what one of the things you run into when you, you break out of the echo chamber, you do something and everyone warns against doing, you're doing the wrong thing. You do it. Yeah. 
and then nothing happens, what you've actually done is you've embarrassed the experts. Correct. And Correct. they'll never forgive you for that. That's right. I mean, that's right. They're paid to be the guys who know, and they don't. This, I think this is a, a big factor in the, in the irrational uh, hatred of Donald Trump. He, he showed them up. And uh, you have to wonder about diplomats or NGO people. They've been in there for decades. What, what, what did they think? When they, actually, maybe we, maybe we should jump ahead. Let's jump ahead because I want I want to have time to the the agreements because sure. it reflects upon what, what what I was going to ask you about. How did they respond to your successes that they never thought would be possible? So give us give us some of the first successes. You know, Morocco and and, and the others. How, how did they? What, what what happened here? Yeah. So August thirteenth, twenty twenty, ten a.m. Uh, President Trump connects a phone call with Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, then the crown prince of the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, now the president of the United Arab Emirates, and then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And the three of them have a phone call, which I would describe as not unlike any other conference call any of us have ever been on. Slightly awkward, people talking over each other, looking for visual cues. But the conclusion of the call was, was that they are going to change the Middle East. The three of these leaders... And I'd say leaders, because they didn't do this for anybody else other than their countries, decided to change the fate of the people of the Middle East for the better. And they did it not with arms and with warfare, but they did it with economics and with prosperity leading to peace. And what they did not do is they didn't have a process. That process was a tightly controlled system led by Jared Kushner, Avi Berkowitz, David Friedman, Ron Dermer, Ambassador Yusuf Al-Taiba, and MBZ, and Prime Minister Netanyahu. That was the circle. And only when they, the leaders decided what their countries were going to do, when the circle expanded. On that morning when that phone call happened, maybe 30 people in the entire world knew what was happening. And I credit Avi Berkowitz uh, and the rest of the team for creating that in such a meaningful way, because there was no chance for the peace processors to strike against it. It was done. And when the announcement came out, peace was happening. Now, so, there's a lot of so, paperwork to be done, but the conclusion was baked. So what was the agreement? The agreement was full normalization in between the United Arab Emirates and the state of Israel, the first such agreement in 25 years. And what happened after that? We went back to Jared's office. And Jared said, it's not called Abraham Accord, it's called Abraham Accords, go. And he said, go big and go fast. And we got on a plane and turned back to Israel and we arranged the first direct flight on El Al to the United Arab Emirates, to Abu Dhabi. When that flight landed, if you can just imagine, in the middle of COVID in August, you have an El Al plane flying over the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, landing in the UAE with people wearing the traditional UAE attire and the flagship carrier of Israel standing and being greeted as an honor guard in the capital of the United Arab Emirates, that picture changed everything about 2020. A really garbage year with lots of really bad news. That was the one image that will always stick in my mind because that changed the world. Because as we landed, as we taxied, we were getting phone calls from other countries who said, this is peace. This isn't hostile. This isn't cold. This is warm. This is real. And, and Jared and Avi and, and the National Security Advisor O'Brien, 
went off with uh, the National Security Advisor of Israel to go meet with the National Security Advisor of the UAE, uh, Sheikh Tachnon, and they said, Arya, just go work with all the general directors and come up with stuff. And my job was to go ahead and, and, and facilitate a very awkward first date with 60 of the top bureaucrats from both countries. And I did that. It was a very fantastic first date. And then I get a phone call from Jared, who's at dinner with Sheikh Tachnun and the mayor Ben Shabbat, the national security advisor of Israel, and says, we're not leaving here without a signed agreement for banking and for, uh, and for visas. I'm like, we're not leaving without a what? Says, I want a signed agreement for banking and visas. And it was 11 o'clock at night. We called everybody into a room. And we had 15 people who worked until 7 o'clock the next morning until there was an agreement ready to be signed by the State of Israel and the United Arab Emirates allowing banking and tourism visa uh, visas uh, to be able to go. And that's because Jared said, get it done. And we got it done because the leadership of the UAE and the leadership of Israel. It's fantastic. What happened next? Bahrain called. We went to Bahrain. And September 15, 2020, on the White House lawn, the Eastern lawn, President Trump walked down the steps, followed by the Prime Minister of Israel, the Foreign Minister of the UAE, and the Foreign Minister of Bahrain, and they signed what was now known as the Abraham Accord Declaration, which all those de- declarations say is, we believe in a better future for all of our peoples. How that'll be constructed, that'll be dependent on each country negotiating on their behalf in their own way. Bahrain's deal is not the same as UAE's deal. It's not the same as Kosovo, which is not the same as Sudan. It's not the same as Morocco. They shouldn't be. But what they agree upon is, Israel is not the problem in the Middle East. Israel is the solution in the Middle East. And the only reason why that pivoted from, if you remember President Obama to President Trump, was because President Trump said, we have one democratic ally who provides us with economics, defense, intelligence. This is our friend. There is no daylight recognizing Jerusalem, recognizing the Golan Heights, putting out the deal of the century. Peace was going to happen from this because we took all of the previous uh, conceived notions and broke them. And the president and Jared and Ambassador Friedman, Pompeo, they were all capable of doing that. It was incredible to watch in real time. As these other countries came in and things moved amazingly fast, uh, I'm, I'm sure you were astonished that, that it was happening. Were you confident during these weeks or were you, I mean, did you always think it's going to stop now? We, we, we're not going to, we're not going to. Tell us, what was the general mood? The mood was euphoric. This was in the depths of COVID, pre-vaccination, economic doldrums, the middle of a horrendous re-election, Black Lives Matter, rioting, protesting, cities burning. And this was that one little light in darkness. And every time I got a phone call from my colleagues in the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, Kosovo, I'm like, oh, the train has hit the station. We're not going to get to push any further. They don't like the politics in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Some Israelis said something they weren't supposed to do. A document wasn't signed the correct way. We had a bunch of people running around who weren't necessarily pre-trained for mm-hmm. signing 150 international MOUs. And I got a lot of those phone calls. And those phone calls came with, I can't believe this person did that. I can't believe this person did that. If you remember, Israel was in the midst of its fourth election in under 18 months at that point in time. There was a lot of confusion here. Uh, but Jared and Avi and David Friedman and Pompeo kept saying, we, it's our job to push. And we, we overcame every obstacle. If we couldn't go over it, we went under it. If we couldn't do that, we went around it. And we pushed and pushed and pushed. And, and we gave what I think was the correct cover for the success to break through this paradigm. And had we been there for any longer, 
undoubtedly we would have another 10 countries uh, that would be part of this miraculous moment in history called the Abraham Accords. Uh, final question, Arya. The things have stalled in the Middle East under the Biden administration. We haven't heard any news like this come out. Have relations that were established, have they deteriorated under the Biden administration or is it just kind of no advance, but no, I mean, maybe I should put it this way. These agreements now are normal. Absolutely. Not, not only that, I, I, I will, it, it's not a coincidence. The first time the Biden administration ever used the word Abraham Accords was two days after the debacle in Afghanistan and debacle is not even a strong enough word. Um, if you remember that famous interview with Matt Lee and Ned Price, where Matt Lee, the AP reporter, couldn't get Ned Price to even use the words Abraham Accords because they were affiliated with Trump and therefore they must be evil, corrupt or whatever, instead of peace in the Middle East. Uh, but they came around. They, they used the names. Uh, Ambassador Tom Nides here in Israel is trying hard to, to sort of coalesce the ambassadors of the Abraham Accord countries and run soccer tournaments and stuff like that. And that's great. And that should be encouraged. And they should be blessed for continuing that. Blessed are the peacemakers. But uh, there's no doubt there's a obvious difference in between the United States of America leading this and the United States of America following this. I give enormous credit to the leadership of the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco, as well as Israel and a new government to be able to say, we're adults, we're sovereign nations. We're going to do this not because the United States asked us to do this. We're going to do this because it's good for our people. And by the way, proof is in the pudding that the Abraham Accords work. It's not just under Trump. It's not just under a friendly administration. They work because peace is good. I said this more times than you could possibly imagine. The Abraham Accords is not a Republican ideal. It's not a democratic ideal. It's an American ideal. And the fact that America is not leading these today, we're losing out. Those countries will be fine. They will be. And the rest of the Middle East will eventually also catch up because every country is competitive. They see the success. Do you know there are 12 daily flights, and maybe it's 11, in between UAE and Israel? And almost every one of them is full, not here in the midst of the summer, but the rest of the year for commerce and tourism and trade. Hmm. Who doesn't want that? Is there a single country in today's economic situation who doesn't want bolstered economic ties? Is there a single country who doesn't want great and superior technology? Is there not a single country who doesn't want a closer tie to the United States of America? The Abraham Accords will work. It's up to America. It's up to us to see if we want to grow them rapidly or if we want them to just, uh, you know, like you said, be normal. The book is Let My People Know, The Incredible Story of Middle East Peace and What Lies Ahead. R.A.A. Lightstone, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.